Can you guys hear me? We'll see how this goes with the mic. I may be using one of these in a little bit. Can you guys still hear me? So good? Okay. I'm just going to go, and if there's super loud noise, just act like nothing has happened, okay? Um, so, first of all, I'm going to tell you two things. First, turn in your Bibles to Exodus 13. Second, I have a theory that I always say, as of today, I've been thinking about it a little bit, and I think that there are two kinds of people in the world. I'm speaking pretty generally, I know, and this could be offensive, um, but I think that there are people who play chess, and there are people who play Spice Uno. <laughs> this is what I think, okay? Here, here's why I think this, because chess requires three things. It requires patience, skill, and strategy. Spicy Uno, on the other hand, requires speed, chance, and socializing. I, myself, am a Spicy Uno girl, okay? It's not that I don't respect people who play chess. Like, I wish I was like you, okay? We all wish that we were like people who played chess because chess is hard. Spicy Uno is fun. I like playing fun things, okay? Chess is just hard. Um, I don't know if you've ever watched people play chess before, but it's, like, so intense. Um, Spicy Uno is intense, but in a way of, like, I wasn't paying attention, and now I just won the game on accident, you know? Um, but chess is hard. Like, people, they're sitting down, and it's really intense, and you have to, like, think about, like, not just, like, the move you're doing, but, like, the next four moves. And, like, if you're not ahead of your opponent and what moves that they're going to make, like, you're going to lose. And I recently heard that, as in I saw on Instagram Reels, I, I saw that, like, professional chess games can go, like, eight to nine hours. I'm like... That sounds terrible. Like, who could sit in a chair for eight hours a day? Oh. Um, but anyways, <laughs> chess is just so intense. It really is. Um, but the one thing that I do like about chess, not a lot, but what I do like about chess is that when you get to that moment where you're like, I'm about to win, you get, this is where the similarities between chess and Uno, this is the one and only similarity, is that in chess, when you're about to win, you get to say, checkmate. And you just like, take that. And in Uno, you get to say the same thing. Not checkmate, you get to say Uno. And that's my favorite part of those games, because then you just kind of sit back and you're just like, I've done it. In Uno, it's chance. In, in chess, I don't know, I've never said checkmate, because I've never won. But <laughs> I, I, there's this moment in both of these games, one of which I like, one of which I don't, that it becomes clear who's going to win. And whether it's a really long game of chess or a really short game of Spicy Uno, there's a moment where you realize this deal is done. And that's where we're at in Exodus. So I hope that you're listening. Exodus 13. If not, you still have a chance. Pull it up on your phone. Um, pull it up on the screens. We'll be reading together. Um, that is where we're going to be. So Exodus 13, starting in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, pause. We're not going to go this slow, I promise. But this is a big moment. Okay, this is like just part of a sentence, and yet this is like, oh my gosh, it's happening. We have been going for 13 chapters this entire semester. The Israelites have been in slavery to Egypt for 400 years, and in this one clause in a sentence, it happens. The checkmate happens. Pharaoh 
lets the people go. This is what Yahweh, the Lord, and Moses have been asking of Pharaoh over and over. Moses comes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm king. I do things how I want to do. I'm not going to let you go. And God sends a plague. And Pharaoh's like, oh, maybe. And then Moses says, let the people go. Pharaoh says, no, I'm king. I do things how I want to do. I don't care who Yahweh is. I do things how I want. I'm not going to let the people go. And it goes back and forth, back and forth. And we've been in these plagues. And two weeks ago, last week we had Q&A, two weeks ago, Drew talked us through the very last plague, the plague where anyone in Egypt, anyone, whether an Israelite, an Egyptian, who did not obey God and put the blood of the spotless lamb over their doorposts would be have whoever was the firstborn in their house die. And this is like a really serious plague. This is like the gut punch um, to Egypt. Anyone who did not obey Jesus, not just Egyptians or Israelites, but anyone who did not obey. And it's out of this that Pharaoh lets the people go. This is a really big deal. This is what we've been waiting for, but it's just a clause in the sentence. So there has to be more. Uh, Let's keep reading. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. For God said, the people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. So he led the people around the Red Sea along the road of the wilderness. And the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle formation. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath saying, God will certainly come to your aid. Then you must take my bones with you from this place. So, The Israelites have been released. They're in a hurry. Remember the Passover. This is to prepare them for God's deliverance. Pharaoh says, get out. Get out of Egypt. You have done enough. I concede. Get out of Egypt. So they they leave. And Moses, we get this detail about Joseph's bones, which is kind of weird. But Joseph is part of the original kind of like the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God made this promise to so long ago that he would make a new people out of them and that they would go into slavery, but that God would deliver them. And so this is a nod to that promise. God is fulfilling his promises that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And then we also get this weird detail of like they're on their way out of Egypt. And then we get this detail about what route they take or actually what route they don't take. There's a lot of... um, ways to get different places, Uh, but Israel is coming out of Egypt, and they're going to the lane of Canaan, and there is a direct route. I think we have a map, maybe. We have a map. Okay, I know there's a lot on this map, but if you look at Egypt, I'm going to stand over here, um, you can see Ramses up in the left-hand corner where, like, the, the green starts, and if you look across to where modern-day Israel is, that's where they're going. They're going to the land of Canaan. So that's like a direct line. That's like a highway. You just go right across. Um, But instead, that land is called the land of the Philistines. That's the group of people there. Instead of taking them directly across the land of Canaan, God says, actually, no, we're taking the long way. It seems like God knows something about the nature of the Israelites that actually if they face war, they're going to turn around. They need to learn to trust me. 
This is a little bit of foreshadowing for what we're going to see um, in the rest of this chapter, but they're taking the long way. Let's pick up in Exodus 14, jump down to verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of, I practice this, Pi Harathoth, between Migdol and the sea. You must camp in front of Baal-Zephon, facing it by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they are wandering around the land in confusion. The wilderness has boxed them in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. So what's happening here is the Israelites have been released. God says, we're taking the long way, but we're, we will go to the promised land. So they're marching out. Like, these are people who were born slaves, and their parents were born slaves, and their parents' parents were born slaves. And they have just been given the ticket out of slavery. This is a ticket to the new life. They are moving out of Egypt. And God says, we're taking the long way, and also, wait, stop, turn around. He says, Stop, turn around, and camp in this very specific place. Those names don't really mean a lot to us, or at least to me. Um, they're a little bit hard to pronounce, which is always kind of confusing. But what we do know, even though we don't know the exact location of what some of these things we're talking about, what we do know is that God tells the Israelites to camp right next to the Red Sea. Right next to the Red Sea. And God actually tells Moses, I'm doing this intentionally. And I'm actually going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And he's going to look out at you guys wandering around in the wilderness. And he's going to go, what am I doing? That's my labor force out there. And I'm going to go out and pursue them. Because first of all, they're not taking the right route. Second of all, they turn around and they're just camping by the Red Sea. This is very confusing. And just imagine being an Israelite. You're like, okay, we're leaving. We're taking the long way. We're stopping. We're camping by the Red Sea. Okay, this is very confusing. So in verses 5 through 9, things go exactly as God said that they would. They camp, and Pharaoh realizes what has happened. He realizes that the people are gone, they're not coming back, that he has lost his slave labor force, and he's like, we have to go get these people. We're going to bring them back, and they will be slaves again. And Egypt goes out to the wilderness to get the Israelites. And they're not just bringing, like, I don't know, the Navy SEALs. Everybody is coming. It says the horsemen, the chariots, the standing army, Pharaoh himself is coming out. And I'm not sure, but I think the technical term translates in Hebrew to, like, Pharaoh and everybody's coming. They're all coming. Everyone that Egypt has who can wield a weapon is coming out to the wilderness to get the Israelites. Let's pick up in verse 10. It says, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians coming after them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. 
for the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you must be quiet. So all of Egypt comes out, and because they are camped with the Red Sea in front of them, Egypt is coming behind them. And I've heard that called being a sitting duck. They have nowhere to go. They cannot go through the Red Sea. There are no boats for an entire nation of people. And the Egyptians are coming, and they have nowhere to go. They are pen like they're hemmed in by the sea and by the Egyptians that are coming. They're sitting ducks, and you can just imagine an entire empire's worth of an army is coming at you. How that must have terrified them, right? This is not the plan. They had just escaped generations and generations of oppression and slavery, and now here they are, sitting ducks. And they let Moses have it. They tell him, they're angry, and they say, what have you done? You brought us out here just to die. This is a failed mission. I don't know why you had us camp here, but you have failed. Yahweh has failed. We're about to die out here. We're going to go back to being slaves. In fact, it would have been better if we had never followed Yahweh out here. It would have been better if we would have been slaves in Egypt, never freed from slavery. Things have to be so bad if slavery sounds better right? Like, things have to sound really, really bad. Death sounds worse than slavery to them at this point. They tell Moses, thank you for bringing us out to die. Thanks for nothing. You have failed. We're not going to be delivered. We're just going to die out here in the wilderness. Moses responds to the people, and he doesn't fly off the handle, like maybe he would have been uh, 20 years later, 40 years before, I mean. He tells the people, I know that you're scared, but don't be afraid because Yahweh will deliver you. Yahweh will bring salvation to you. And for real, the Hebrew this time, um, that phrase, you must be quiet, in Hebrew it's only two words, and it translates more correctly to be quiet or even more forcefully like shut up. That's what he tells the people. He says, you need to shut up. And you need to watch and wait for God to, to bring salvation, to deliver. These are like really strong words. This is like strong tension. They're out here and they're about to die. In verses 15 through 20, God speaks again to Moses and he tells him more of what is about to happen. He says, I am going to split the Red Sea in half. There is going to be dry land, and the entire nation of Israel is going to walk through the dry land. And then the Egyptians are going to come, and they're going to come through, and I will bring judgment on the Egyptians. What? This is crazy. He's saying, okay, I'm going to split the Red Sea. I will bring deliverance in this crazy situation. God who is leading his people, he's leading them, um, the manifestation of his presence through a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. And currently, the Egyptians are here, God's presence is here, the Israelites are here, and the Red Sea is here. So at night, God moves his presence to in front of the Israelites to lead them through the Red Sea, which also leaves them with the Egyptians to come right after them. Let's read what happens in verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. 
So the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with the waters like a wall to them on their right and on their left. So God splits the sea, and the Egyptians come in right after them. And this is what happens, picking up in 24. Sorry, there wasn't a slide for that. Just giving you more scripture. During the morning watch, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptian says, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them back into the sea. The water came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not even one of them survived. Things happen exactly as God said that they would. The Egyptians race in after the Israelites, and God throws them into a confusion. I don't know exactly what that means, but it talks about uh, the chariots, like they are swerving. The wheels are like coming off the Egyptian operation. They are unable to re-enslave the Israelites. And there's so much chaos and confusion that it finally clicks for the Egyptians. And they say, we are fighting against Yahweh. We are fighting against God. He is fighting for Israel. We have to get away. In this moment, they finally realize who Yahweh is. And while they're in the sea, God causes the sea to come back over them. Even those who would escape, says God throws them into the sea. And they're all drowned. Not a single one of them survives. It's in this moment that justice has finally come for the nation of Israel. The Egyptians who threw Hebrew baby boys into the Nile River because they would eventually become fighters to be a threat to Egypt, those fighters are the ones who are drowned in the waters of justice. In this moment, God avenges the genocide that Egypt waged on Israel in this moment. Not a single one of Egypt's army remains. The might of Egypt is no more. There is nothing. The Israelites, who had been violently oppressed for 400 years, have not only walked out of captivity, but have left their oppressors gone. There's no one left, except for everyone in Egypt who now knows Yahweh is the Lord. It is clear that God is the one with power and authority, that he is the God of justice, and that he is the God of deliverance. As I was reading through this text, it's a familiar text. Maybe you've heard of the parting of the Red Sea. Um, and as I was thinking about it, like, to go back to that beginning question, like, I thought when they would go out of Egypt, like, this is it. Like, we finally made it. This is the Exodus part of Exodus. And then God orchestrates this specific situation. He says, we're not taking the long way. No, we're not doing that. We're not taking the short way. 
We're taking the long way. And then he says, actually turn around, and I'm going to work in Pharaoh's heart, and he's going to pursue you, and you're going to be sitting ducks, and then I am going to split a sea so that you will go through, and then I'm going to drown your enemies in the sea. That is hard to understand. It's hard to understand why does God work in this way. We know that God could just speak and deliverance would happen, that the Israelites could be transported from Egypt to Canaan. Like we know that God has all power, that he is um, without limit. So why does God choose to act in this way? Why does he allow certain things? Why does he cause certain things to happen? Maybe that's a question that sounds familiar because you've asked it, not about uh, a text maybe, but maybe more about the situation in your life. You're looking at your life and you're asking, why has God chosen to work in this way? How am I supposed to make sense of the events that are happening in my life? Why does God choose to work in the way that he does? What is the purpose of those things? That's the question that we're going to pick up in the second half. So five-minute break rush to the bathroom, or get some hot cocoa. We'll jump back in a second. There's no doubt, right? Like, it's not like, oh, they slipped out the back door. They're not slaves anymore. No, Egypt has been leveled. There is nothing left to hold the Israelites in slavery. This is total and complete victory over Egypt. So, God is not only working for his glory, but he's actually working for the good of the Israelites. And this is what we see throughout scripture. We see that God works and chooses to do things. He works for his glory and for our good. That sounds really great, right? It's like, that is so true. Like God works for his glory and for our good. He tells us this in scripture. But I have to be honest, it does not always feel like that. I know that I read it in the Bible, and I believe the Bible. But sometimes it does not feel like God is working for his glory and my good. And I can even believe that like God is working things for his glory that I might not be able to understand. But it is really hard sometimes to believe that God is working for my good. I don't know, maybe you have experienced this too, when uh, that job or that internship that you really wanted, the one that you got your resume reviewed for, and you did the mock interview, and then you did the real interview, and you thought you nailed it, and then all of a sudden, we're sorry, you've been rejected. I don't know if you've ever had that moment where it feels like, now I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do this summer. I don't know what I'm going to do after I graduate. In those moments, it does not feel like God is working for your good. When your girlfriend or your boyfriend breaks up with you, or when suddenly things are so much harder and more complicated than you thought they would be, or maybe when you came to school thinking you would come out a married man or woman, and that is not on the horizon, and you don't see that coming, and you're asking, how can this be for my good? How is God working for my good? It does not feel like God is working for my good. When you get a call about a death in your family, about a tragedy, about a divorce, it does not feel like God is working for my good, for your good. When you're battling sickness 
or anxiety or depression. And no matter what you do, no matter what you try or who you talk to, it just, nothing helps. Nothing works. It does not feel like God is working for your good. What do we do in those moments when it does not feel like God is working for our good? I want to pause and say that in this text, we see God orchestrating a situation top to bottom. God orchestrates everything in this situation for his purposes, for his glory and for their good. But in our lives, while God does act, God does not always orchestrate everything in our lives. He has control over it, yes, but that doesn't mean that he causes everything. Sometimes the moments where you and I feel like God is not working for our good are because of our own sin and foolishness. When I walk in pride, I shouldn't be surprised that my relationships suffer. Or, not even sin, but if I spend my whole paycheck on Chick-fil-A, I shouldn't be surprised that I have a financial issue, that I have anxiety over finances, even if that's real and legit. Sometimes those moments in our lives are caused by our sin or our foolishness, but sometimes they're also caused by other people's sin or other people's foolishness. It wasn't your fault that your parents got a divorce, but it definitely is one of those moments where it feels like, how is God working in this? How is God working in this divorce? How is he working this for my good? This is someone else's fault. And sometimes hard things in our lives are caused not by me or by you specifically, but by a broken world that we live in. When your grandpa dies of cancer, whose fault is that? It's a broken world that we live in. It's a result of sin. And yet it causes us to ask, how is God working this for my good? Sometimes we say things like, everything happens for a reason. And that's actually, it's not in the Bible. Um, and there's this guy at Ozark, his name is Michael DeFazio, and he says, I think that we should stop saying that. We should say, not that everything happens for a reason, but that God can redeem everything that happens. Whether I caused it, whether someone else caused it, whether it's a result of a broken world that we live in, or whether God has caused something to happen, that God is in the business of redeeming all things. But it still remains, regardless of the cause of the moment when we ask, how is God working this for my good? The question still remains. The feelings are still there. Those circumstances still exist. And I think sometimes it's easy to look at the Bible and to look at my life and say, well, like, yeah, like, I have been struggling with this, but in the Bible, like, he just parts the Red Sea. And, like, he just heals her. Jesus just works, and things happen, and the miraculous happens in the Bible, and everything just works out. God always just delivers in the Bible, but not in my life. My life is different. I, I look at the things in my life, and I don't understand how God could be working these for my good. I understand that thought, but I would challenge you saying that it actually doesn't work out like that in the Bible. 
often. Instead of just thinking about the Israelites that walked through the Red Sea, think about the generations of Israelites that died in slavery. They knew that God had promised to deliver him, and they died without seeing that promise come to fruition. I think it probably felt like, how is God working in this? We're still slaves. How is God working this for our good? Think about the Apostle Paul, someone who suffered tremendously for the sake of the gospel. Someone who was beaten, stoned, slandered, taken to court, put in jail, persecuted for the sake of the gospel. Do you think it felt like God is working this for my good in those moments? It was not easy to see. He himself even talks about this thing that he calls a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that is. It could have been physical something he had. It could have been blindness. It could have been um, a relationship. We don't know. He describes it as this thorn in the flesh that's causing issues in his life. And he asks God, please take this away. Three times he asks God, please take this away. And God says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Stay in it. God doesn't take it away. In the Bible and in our lives, God does not always deliver right away. The Red Sea doesn't always just part for us. So how is it that we are supposed to respond when circumstances in our life make us ask this question, how is God working this for my good? In the text, we see three responses, and I think that we can find ourselves in those responses. The first is the response of Moses. It might seem easy to be Moses, but when, when God speaks and he tells Moses this is what's going to happen, Moses still has to have faith. God says this is what's going to happen, and Moses chooses to believe He chooses to take God at his word. And he tells the people, watch and wait for God's salvation. We also see the Egyptians. Throughout the entire story of Exodus, the Egyptians are portrayed as people who are actively rebelling against God. God gives them opportunity after opportunity to repent and to obey, to let the people go to stop oppressing them. And time and time again, after 10 plagues, after every opportunity to recognize Yahweh as Lord, they refuse. And Pharaoh and the Egyptians, those who would rebel against God, face judgment. The third response is that of the Israelites. This is most often probably where we are. The Israelites are God's people. They've just been led out of of Egypt. And they have a certain level of faith, but when things get really hard and really confusing and it doesn't make sense, they spiral. All of a sudden, instead of having faith, they have doubt. And it's a doubt that leads to unbelief. There's different kinds of doubt, but this doubt leads to unbelief for the Israelites. 
They look at their circumstances and they say, slavery would have been better than following Yahweh. We should have never followed Yahweh because this is too hard. This is not what I signed up for. I think we know that the Israelites are like, that's a bad response, right? Like, we're kind of like, yeah, Moses, tell them, tell them to shut up, you know? Like, but I think if we're honest, like, that is the place that we often can find ourselves in. That's the place at least that I am tempted to go when circumstances are really hard in my life. So how is it that we can avoid being the Israelites in this scenario? How is it that we can have a more faithful response to hard situations in our life? It seems like the Israelites suffer from spiritual memory loss. I think that's a technical term. They just came out of Egypt, right? Like they have just walked out of Egypt after 400 years, a day they could have only dreamed about, and they walk out of Egypt. They have witnessed the 10 plagues that have demonstrated God's power over the Egyptian false gods. They have watched the Nile turn to blood. They have watched... Uh, frogs come out and flies and all this destruction, the hail. They have seen darkness so dense it could be felt and yet light where they are. They have seen God bring judgment on the firstborn of those who would disobey Yahweh. And yet despite all the things that they have seen, despite witnessing God's power to save, when things get hard and when things get confusing, they spiral into unbelief because of their spiritual memory loss. I think that the key to persevering in hard circumstances is not looking around us at the circumstances, but actually looking back to the deliverance that God gives. If the Israelites had looked back on the deliverance that God had already demonstrated for them in Egypt instead of looking at their situation so closely, instead of having this spiritual memory loss, I think things would have been different. And I think for us, the same is true. We don't look back primarily on the Exodus, although that's part of it. Our deliverance is in Jesus. And that is what we as Christians look back to. It is we who have to remember in the middle of our situation that God himself has come down to rescue us, that God himself put on flesh, became incarnate, fully man and fully God in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who lived a perfect, sinless life that you and I could not ever live, that he died on a cross to pay the debt that our sin incurred, and then three days later rose from the grave full of life, and that our deliverance is in a person, and his name is Jesus. That our deliverance is for any who would put their faith in the person and work of Jesus. And put down their arms and say, I'm not king. Jesus is king. And I submit my life to him. That is the deliverance that we look back on. And it is only through Jesus it is only through Jesus that you can be delivered from your pornography addiction. It is only through Jesus that you can be freed from cycles of manipulating people. 
It is only through Jesus that you can be saved from the effects of things that people have done to you. It is only through Jesus that you can actually escape death. Romans 6, 5 through 8 puts it this way. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since the person who has died is freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Is this language of deliverance in Jesus. Deliverance from slavery to sin into light, into freedom, into Christ. And it is only by looking back to that deliverance that we can have hope right now. Having hope in Jesus doesn't mean that bad things won't happen to you. Sometimes we can think that. We can think, well, if I've been delivered in Jesus and I'm following him and I have the Holy Spirit and I'm trying to live faithfully, then like mostly things will like work out. I am very tempted to believe this. And it's those hard things that have confronted that belief in me. Hope in Jesus doesn't mean that bad things won't happen to us. It just means that in those moments, we look back to our deliverance in Jesus, and that is where our hope comes from, not our current situation. Because sometimes God does part the Red Sea. And sometimes we die in slavery. Not to sin, but whatever situations we might have. Sometimes God does part the Red Sea, and sometimes God leaves the thorn in Paul's flesh. Our circumstances, whether they are good or bad, are not the final word on whether God is working for your good. It's so tempting to think that my circumstances determine whether God is working for my good. But they're not the final word on that. Jesus is. Our circumstances are not the final word on whether God is working for our good. Jesus is. Even if things get bad and they stay bad until we die or Jesus comes back, We can trust that God is working for his glory and our good because of Jesus. And if things get good and stay good until we die or Jesus comes back, we can trust that God is working for our good because of Jesus. And if, like me, things get really bad and things get really good, maybe sometimes in the same day, We can trust that God is working for his glory and our good, my good, your good, our good, because of Jesus. I want you to look at the response. I didn't read it before. Look at the response of the Israelites when they see God's deliverance. This is in 1430. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him 
and in his servant Moses. When the people see the deliverance, when they look back on the deliverance, for them the exodus and for us Jesus, they have faith. Not in their circumstance, but in God's faithfulness to deliver. And it changes how they see their current situation. We talk about this at the table and we call it gospel-centered life. It is this change that happens because of the work of the Spirit when we submit to Jesus. And it changes my ability to see my current situation and my future outcomes in light of what Jesus has done for me. It's outside of my circumstances, but it shapes how I see my circumstances. That the gospel, Jesus' work of deliverance on the cross, changes how I understand all these circumstances even when the circumstances make me question, how is God working this for my good? How do we do that? How do we practically live a gospel-centered life? How do we practice having the way that we see our circumstances be changed in light of what Jesus has done? I just want to give you three things. Um, the first is to do what the Israelites did to believe, specifically in what Jesus has done for you. To believe in the person and work of Jesus. To surrender your life to him. To say that he is Lord and I am not, and I will no longer live life on my terms. I will repent of my sin and be baptized for the forgiveness of my sins and live in new life with Christ, where he is king over my life. The first step in living a gospel-centered life is to believe in the gospel. The second is to evaluate what you feel with the word of God. In situations where it is hard to see how God is working things for our good, our emotions are typically running pretty high. And our emotions are part of how God made us. It's part of his design. Our emotions are not bad. The thing that emotions are is that they are indicators. Indicators of what we really believe and what we really desire. If I get really upset and I get really angry when somebody comes up to me and say, hey, you know that like QA, Q&A QR code that didn't work a couple weeks ago? That was your fault. Can you do a little better next time? Somebody said that to me and if I get just like so upset that indicates something to me. It indicates maybe I think I'm perfect or I should be. It might indicate that I think if I make a mistake, I'm not valuable. That anger is an indicator of something that I believe. So when we go through these hard situations, we need to not just take our emotions at surface value, at face value, but we need to evaluate them. What is this emotion telling me about what I actually believe? And then we take that belief and we compare it to the word of God. And we evaluate what we believe against the word of God. There's a really practical way to do this. I learned this from my friend Morgan, where you get a piece of paper and you make a T-chart. I should have made a slide for this, sorry. Um, you make a T-chart. You just draw one line and draw another line. Anyone can do this. And on one side, you write everything that you are thinking and feeling. I'm so angry with that person because they told me that I messed up. 
I feel shame because I messed up. I feel like I'm not doing my job well because I messed up. Fill in the blank of anything that I'm thinking and feeling. And then on the other side of the T-chart, I write down the truth about God and the truth about me. And you have to be as specific as you can. The word of God speaks to these things about who God is and who I am. So if I wrote, I'm so angry because I feel like I've failed and I just, I feel like I'm not worth anything when I fail. The truth would be that the word of God says, yes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all in need of grace. The truth would be that God's love for me is not dependent on my actions. So we write down everything we're thinking and feeling, and we write down the truth of the word of God, and then we compare the two. My other friend, Rachel Vincent, she was here last week for Q&A. This is one of my favorite, favorite things that she says. She says, if I am disagreeing with scripture, with what God has said in his word, one of us has to be wrong, and it is never God. It is never his word. So if there is a disconnect between what I'm thinking and feeling and what I'm believing and what the word of God says in these moments, it is I who have to change. I am the one who needs to repent and believe what is true about God as revealed in his word. We need to evaluate what we feel with the word of God. The last thing that I would encourage you in having a gospel-centered life is to have a long spiritual memory. You and I tend to forget good things and remember bad things. If you ever hear somebody talk about a trip and they only tell you stories about things that went wrong, don't assume that everything just went wrong. Those are just the things we remember. We are bad at remembering good things. We can take them for granted. But in faith, we have to have a better spiritual memory. We cannot be like the Israelites who forgot at the first sign of trouble what God has done. Practically, write down how God has answered prayers in your life. Journal about the hard situations that are going on and how God is providing for you in those situations. Be with friends who can point out how God is growing you in this season, how God has sanctified you. Most of all, beyond just reminding ourselves of uh, specific things that God has done for us, how God has provided for us, ultimately our spiritual memory has to be rooted in the deliverance of Jesus in the gospel. And that is what we have to preach to ourselves. The gospel is not a moment for conversion. It is what we preach to ourselves over and over and over. It is why we constantly talk about the gospel at the table. This is why we need to be in church to hear the gospel. This is why we need Christian community to hear the gospel. We need to write it down. We need to hear it. We need to sing it. We have to remind ourselves because we have memory loss when it comes to God's faithfulness. You and I have to practice remembering what God has done faithfully in the past, most clearly in Jesus, in delivering us. In order to live faithfully when things are hard and you're asking God, I don't know how you could work this for my good. It is by remembering 
and being rooted in the gospel, in the deliverance of Jesus, that we could have faith in hard moments. My prayer for you is that if you have not experienced the deliverance of Jesus, if you have not put your faith in him, acknowledge him as Lord and are living in submission to him, that you would repent. That you would be like the Israelites who recognize their mistake and not like the Egyptians who waited until it was judgment day. And my prayer for you, if you have already done that, if you have already put your faith in Jesus, is that you would respond to Moses' call to quiet the voices of emotions and wrong beliefs that are not in alignment with God's word. That you would realign your heart and your mind, regardless of the situation. And that you would let Jesus be the final word on God working things for his glory and for our good. May we know that Yahweh is the Lord, the God of deliverance, the God who delivers us in Jesus. And would everything in our lives flow from that truth and be centered on him. Let's pray. Father, you are the deliverer. You are king over all things. All gods bow to you. All people bow to you. Father, you are sovereign over all the things that happen in our lives, whether we have caused it or others have caused it, or whether you are specifically working. Father, I pray that you would give us faith in hard moments to trust that because of Jesus, we know that you are working for our good, that you proved your love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Father, I pray that that truth would sink into our hearts, that it would saturate our lives, that we would remember your faithfulness to us in Jesus, that we would not forget, and that it would change how we think about our lives, Father, how we act, that we would grow in obedience and love for Jesus, for you. Father, would we put away anything that would keep us from doing that? Whether it is sin or wrong belief, Father, would we follow you faithfully? Because you alone can save. And you alone are worthy of our worship and our lives. It is in Jesus' name. Amen.